Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark's first chapter. We're going to add our third sermon installment in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And I want to confess, the more I study the opening chapters of this Gospel, the words of that song that we just sang become so much more vivid that He is greater than all sin, sustains cures all weakness, just amazed by his, his grace. And we sang earlier, hallelujah, what a savior. You know, I was talking to someone about preaching a gospel. You know, we spent five years in Romans and, and we've now turned to a narrative. And uh, someone asked me, a pastor friend of mine said, well, how are you gonna change the application when you get into a gospel? How do you make prescription out of description? And I think the best way to understand how to apply any one of the four Gospels is every single week we're going to learn to sing with our lives, hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, we're going to be looking at the very beginning of his ministry this morning. Let me put these verses in our minds for us. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20. Now, after John, that is the Baptist, had been... Taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel and saying, The time was fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, the hired servants, and went away to follow him. Several years ago, Kim and I were coming home from a time of ministry in Europe, and because of a scheduling um, difficulty, we had an extra day. And so we decided to take one day and see as much of Paris as we could. I think we walked at least 12 or 15 miles that day. It was an Uh, a whirlwind tour. We saw everything we possibly could see in such a limited day. One of the things on my my bucket list for Paris was to go to the Louvre Museum and to see the Mona Lisa. It's the most famous painting in the world. It has the highest value of any painting known to man. In fact, if you look up on um, the greatest source of information, Wikipedia, um, you will find, and also the Louvre Museum, that, do you know how much the Mona Lisa is worth? There's no figure. It truly is priceless. I wanted to see the Mona Lisa. 
It's the jewel of Paris. So we made our way to the Louvre Museum and bought our tickets, studied our map of the multi-building museum, isolated where the painting was, and began to make our trek through the intricate maze of buildings to find this painting we so wanted to see. Well, we made our way around a corner into a hallway that was very slow moving, shoulder to shoulder, chest to back. It didn't take long to figure out why. It appeared that we weren't the only people there to see the Mona Lisa. Then we realized that we were not just in a crowded hallway, we were actually in line to see this painting. We knew the Mona Lisa was on the wall in a room. This was a giant room. How many of you have ever seen the Mona Lisa? Yeah. It's, it's hard to describe. It's a massive room, the size of a, of a warehouse. We walked into this cavernous room. We knew the Mona Lisa was on that wall because everyone was crowding that way. It was a little bit sad because there are paintings on the sidewall and no one was paying any attention to them. I felt sorry for those artists. I hope they were all dead and not seeing how they were being ignored. What seemed like an eternity, hours, as we kept getting closer and closer and we could see a bit of a frame, see a bit of the painting. We're getting closer and closer and I feel like a kid looking around. That's hard for me at 5'7 to look over anything. Kim could see it from a long way away. (laughs) Then we got there. It was our turn. And we were standing Six feet from the most famous painting in the world, the Mona Lisa. And I studied it, and I marveled at it, and I looked at it. I pondered it. I thought, and then said, it's small. The painting is only 30 by 21 inches. It hangs on a massive wall by itself. I felt like I was looking at a, at a cereal box on the wall of Home Depot with nothing else on it. It was that small looking in contrast. But to stand a few feet away from the Mona Lisa, you begin to realize why she is such a big deal. Here's the point. That painting was what I had wanted to see, but it was not what I was expecting. I don't know why I had it in my mind that this would be massive. If you go down this, this, uh, to this room to see the Mona Lisa, the, the paintings on the side are, are massive. I mean, they're, they're, they're the size of walls. And here's this little bitty painting that's priceless and the most famous painting, most valuable painting in the world. Transfer that misplaced expectation to the coming of Messiah. Think of being a Jew who, as, as it were, was spiritually standing in line generation after generation. Every young man who would rise up in Israel to begin fighting the Romans or standing up for truth, they began to wonder, is he the one? Is he the one? Is that the Messiah? They had a longing expectation for the coming Savior. But when he came, he was not 
what they were expecting. Think about the circumstances of Jesus' entry into the world, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as he descended from heaven and became a man. His birth conception was, uh, was very questionable to people. He, he was conceived under less than ideal circumstances. No one expected the Messiah to be born under suspicion of immorality. We read in John that all the way up until his, his adult ministry, people were saying, we weren't born of fornication like you. My suspicion is that Selling the virgin birth and the virgin conception to people during that time was not very easy. His youth was marked by only one event that we know of in the temple where he sat down as a 12-year-old and began schooling the religious leaders. And now we come in Mark chapter 1 to what was really the inauguration, the beginning of his ministry. And it was... It was, well, it was, it was not what anyone would expect. Now, a little review, going back to last week, Mark showed us at the beginning of his gospel three sources of credibility for his readers to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God from heaven. Remember, his forerunner was the first source of credibility, John the Baptist. Secondly, his baptism, which was the affirmation of the Father and the Spirit, all three members of the Trinity. And third, his temptation, the devil and the angels. The devil tempted him, the angels ministered to him, showing that, that even the angelic realm affirmed that Jesus was the Son of God. And after that prologue, that, that credibility that set up in the first 13 verses, Mark now turns his narrative to the public ministry of Jesus, his preaching. His message. This is where the story of Jesus for Mark really begins. And his narrative starts with a vibrant account of Jesus calling four fishermen to be his intimate disciples and followers. In fact, it's two pair of brothers. Now, this is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. This is the launching point. This is the starting gate. And here's Mark's point. The beginning of Jesus' ministry was astounding and unexpected. Let's break it down. I want to show you from this passage four astounding features of Jesus' ministry inauguration. Four astounding, unbelievable, unexpected features of Jesus' ministry inauguration. The first is, in verse 14, it's a surprising setting. This is indeed a surprise. It's a surprising setting. Look at the first part of verse 14. Now, after John, that's the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. Let's set up the context here. Mark intends to show us that the place where Jesus started his ministry and the circumstances under which he started were not only unexpected, but almost irrational. First thing he tells us is after John the Baptist had been arrested, taken into custody, the Greek word tells us, the verb tells us he was taken by force. 
Mark is intending to show us <laughs> the timing and audacity of Jesus' ministry from the very beginning. After he'd been taken into custody. That marks the time. Now that's important because Mark speaks to this event as something the readers already knew about. Now later in chapter 6, he's going to have a flashback and tell us about the, the actual death and the circumstances of John's execution. He assumes that the readers know about this. John would be beheaded for standing for the truth and calling sin, sin. And we'll consider those details when we get into chapter 6. I think, though, what Mark is intending for us to see here is it's a powerful signal about the undaunted bravery and preaching of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is going to preach the same message that John preached, and that message had just landed John in prison. And Jesus takes the mantle of repentance for looking for the kingdom of God and undauntedly just continues to hammer the same message. Although John's ministry, his preaching, put him into prison, Jesus preached that exact same message to the exact same people, continuing to front confront not only the people who gathered but the religious leaders as John did which will get him beheaded and which Jesus did which will land him on a cross Mark throws that in there to let us know uh, John just got arrested and after that Jesus comes into Galilee and he comes preaching he says Jesus came into this area into the region of Galilee I think Isaiah provides us with an important insight about this with his words. I'm just amazed over and over at looking at how God does things and in different ways that you and I would have planned it. Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and God will have compassion on him and to our God for he abundantly pardons then he says this, quoting God, my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. We know that the heart of God is not to do things like we would do them. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 50, verse 21, God says, your problem is you thought I was just like you. If you and I, think about this, if we got a whiteboard and we had lunch this afternoon and we were going to plan by being tasked by God the entrance of the Son of God into the world and the coming Messiah, how would we do that? We would probably start with the details of a presidential inauguration. Not our God. Jesus came, this is significant, into Galilee. Why is that important? Because all that had been said about the Messiah through the prophets in many portions and in many ways said that the Messiah's primary ministry would be in the capital city of Jerusalem. 
This ought to be a flashing light on the radar of your Bible. You would expect, if you were reading this for the first time and you knew only Old Testament truth, you knew nothing of Jesus, you would expect that next phrase not to be Galilee, but to be Jerusalem. The king of the Jews, you would expect to come to the capital of the Jews. And he would sooner than later. Unexpectedly, his launching point for his ministry, the place where he would announce his messages, the people to whom he would proclaim his gospel, the place where his sermons would be preached and cataloged and remembered, the first place and context of his miracles, the introduction of his identity and his messiahship, didn't happen in the capital of Jerusalem. It happened in the blue-collar fishing villages around a lake. His ways are indeed not our ways. Now, we are going to spend a lot of time in Mark with Jesus in Galilee because, except for a couple of trips, Jesus spends almost all of the first three and a half years of his ministry in and around Galilee. Sure, he went down to Jerusalem cleanse the temple. He'll find his way into the Gentile cities of, of, uh, uh, of the, uh, the southern region of Galilee. But Galilee's a target. Let me tell you a little bit about Galilee. We're going to spend a lot of time in Galilee, so you need to know a little bit about it. It's the northernmost province in Israel. Remember, there was Judea, Samaria in the middle, and then Galilee at the top. And remember that not only is Galilee where Jesus began his ministry, it's also where he finished his ministry. Where did he ask the disciples to meet him after the resurrection? Galilee. It'll be the real estate where the Lord will organize the disciples for the launch of their ministries moving forward. Jerusalem, over which he will weep, he met resistance, opposition, unfaithfulness, legalism, treachery, wickedness, organized spiritual mutiny against God himself. And all of that from the religious leaders who knew better. But in Galilee, there was openness, receptivity, Ears to hear, crowds that followed, conversions that happened. And as I said, almost all of the last three years of Jesus' earthly life will be spent in and around Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is an interesting piece of water, and we are going to have lots of encounters with this lake in the coming chapters. It's about 12 and a half miles long and seven and a half miles wide. It's 680 feet below sea level. It has always been and continues to be a plentiful lake for fishing and the fishing industry then and now. Um, if you've been to Israel, you've no doubt had what's called St. Peter's fish. It's tilapia, and it's really good. Keep your eyes and ears open for how this lake is going to be used by the Son of God as the prominent backdrop to so much of what he's going to do and say and teach in the coming chapters of Mark. 
We're going to see fish and fishing, storms and water, boats and shores, all come into focus as a backdrop for Jesus. Now, a little footnote. When you're reading the Gospels or you're reading any, any other historical part of, of the Bible, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Samuel, um, even parts of the, uh, the uh, Deuteronomy, parts of uh, Numbers, parts of the Prophets, the Gospels, and the Book of Acts, anytime you're in a historical narrative part of Scripture, one of the things that ought to catch your attention over and over and over is the geography. Oftentimes, the narrator uses geography as the significant separators in the story he's telling. So when he says Jesus came preaching in Galilee, that's significant. All to say, it's fair to assume that Galilee was not the place and the setting that anyone expected the Messiah to start his ministry. And yet, here's Jesus starting his preaching, taking the baton of the message of repentance from his cousin and friend, John the Baptist, and he begins preaching the same message in the same area that landed John in prison. What a debut. And an amazing and unexpected, astounding setting. There's a second astounding feature of Jesus' ministry inauguration here in this passage. It's an astonishing message. A shocking, astonishing message. In the last phrase in verse 14, we see the little phrase, preaching the gospel of God. And saying the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There are two terms, two phrases in verses 14 and 15 that have tripped people up in many ways for a long time. And I don't think they're nearly as complicated as some people want to make them. The first is the phrase, the gospel of God, and the second is the kingdom of God. First of all, let's tackle what, what, is, what does Mark mean? What did Jesus mean when he was preaching the gospel of God? Mark tells us that was his message, the good news of God. That was the message in Galilee. Now, the first thing you need to notice, Jesus came preaching I've heard this attributed to so many people. I don't know. I think it's a Puritan. I'm going to confess. I'd like to footnote it, but I can't. But someone, not me, has said this, that Jesus, as God's son, came into the world as his only begotten son. And God had only one son, and he made him to be a preacher. The word for preach here is probably going to surprise you. There are words that the, the pastoral epistles use for teaching, and I think those words more account for what we're doing here today. This word means more proclamation, announcement, and is used most in the book of Acts for evangelism. Sure, Jesus exposited scripture, but make no mistake, his ministry was primarily calling people to be converted as we'll see in a minute, calling those who are going to join him to that same evangelistic ministry. So what does this phrase mean? The gospel, the good news of God. Well, notice, first of all, parallel that with the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think Mark is conflicted there. Those are one and the same. But the word uh, euangelion, the Greek word for gospel, has a little bit of elasticity in the New Testament. 
John the Baptist was said preaching the gospel. Sometimes that word refers to one of the four narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's a gospel, an account of the life of Jesus. Sometimes the word gospel uh, means good news about Jesus' life, teaching, death, burial, resurrection, and, and ascension. It's the gospel message. It's what you need to hear to be saved. That's most often how you and I use it today. But that can't be the use of the word gospel here. Why? He hadn't died or rose from the dead or ascended yet. So what good news, that's what the word simply means, what good news of God did Jesus come preaching? That was a same sense of good news that John the Baptist preached. I think the parallel is in the next phrase. Here's the good news. It's time. The time is fulfilled. The good news that the time has come for the arrival of the Messiah. Galatians 4, verse 5 says, verse 4 says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You know what the good news that Jesus preached is? I'm here. It's me. It's time. Everything that the Old Testament has pointed to is fulfilled in who I am. That's the good news. The king is here, which leads us to the next little phrase that gets people tripped up. The kingdom of God. See see where he speaks of the kingdom of God? He says more than the kingdom of God, generically. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you see a, a connection here? He preached the gospel. The time is here. The kingdom of God is right in front of you. It's at hand in what sense was the kingdom of God at hand in the days of the disciples? Now, before you answer that, I would encourage you to read Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Zephaniah and Isaiah, and see all that it says about the coming kingdom of God. And then match that with what you see in the Gospels. All of that didn't take place that was prophesied. So in what sense could Jesus say the kingdom of God is at hand? Real simple. The king was in their presence. If the king is there, that's the greatest representation of the kingdom. The reign of God as king over his kingdom began to take place there on the shores of the Galilee Lake. However, listen, it's important. It was not fully manifested then and will not be until Jesus returns. So don't get tripped up. We're going to see this again and again in Mark. There's a present spiritual dimension of the kingdom that's applicable for them and us. But also, that doesn't rule out the future possibility of the literal fulfillment of the promises and prophecies that the prophets gave us in the Old Testament. It's the, what theologians call the already and not yet tension. Is the kingdom here? Well, yeah, in some sense. Is God reigning? Well, if he's not, who is? He's given temporary rulership 
Well, the planet to the enemy, Ephesians 2 tells us, yet as God abrogated his kingship over the universe, no, he hasn't. So are we in the kingdom? Yes and no. Now and not yet. We'll come back to this in a few chapters, but a little glimpse is in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples asked Jesus, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if it was the kingdom already, he should have said, ah, boys, you don't get it. This is the kingdom right now. You know what he said? It's not the time for you to know. In other words, it's still to come. So you need to get used to this already and not yet dimension of the kingdom of God. In a very real sense, the kingdom of God was at hand for them because they were looking into the eyes of who? The king. And again, in an unexpected way, in an unexpected place. Now look at the two important verbs of Jesus' message. Repent and believe in the gospel. When you uh, kind of collate Matthew and Luke's uh, messaging of John the Baptist and match it with what John was doing here in Mark chapter 1, that was John's message as well. That's important. Very significant. Repent and believe. And he says believe in the good news. What is the good news? The verse just told us that he's the king, he's the Messiah, he's arrived, he's the one to look to. Mark's focus is on the fact that Jesus, like John, preached repentance and the distinctive element of his message was faith or commitment or change in the heart of those who followed after him. I find it interesting that the first unfolding of the message of, of God through his Messiah was not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> you know what it was? You're in trouble with God and you better repent because he's coming and he's the judge and he's made provision for you to be safe from the coming wrath. We won't take too much time to collate this, but remember what John said to the religious leaders who were coming to, to be baptized by him? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Jesus was the answer we're going to see that unfold chapter after chapter in Mark's gospel. It's an astounding message. It's astounding that he would keep pre preaching John's same message because that had got John arrested. It's also astounding that the Messiah applied the good news of the gospel to the moral dimensions of a person before God before he applied the coming Messiah to the rebellion against Rome and the ruling and reigning of Israel over the earth. That's for the future and another time, but that wasn't his first message. Thirdly, we look at the astounding features of Jesus' ministry. An unlikely group of men, an unlikely cohort. Let me just tell you, we are going to nibble at this because in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to have a fuller description of the calling of the disciples. 
Here we find out that Peter and his brother and two other brothers were called, which makes sense if we know that Mark's source for his gospel was Peter. (laughs) An unlikely cohort, verses 16 and 19, just looking at these two pairs of brothers. Verse 16, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, literally on the shore, walking along the, the shore. Now, you can't, listen, in this part, which is probably close to Capernaum, you, you can't think of these beautiful beaches that's on the, the eastern shore of Galilee. This is volcanic rock. It made for great little harbors for fishing boats, but this was not a stroll along the beach with your toes in the water enjoying a sunset. And the point is, you had to get there on purpose. He's going along, walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Experts tell us that this would have been in the morning, right after dawn, or at night, right before, because that's when the fish come in to feed by the shore, close enough to where he could talk to them. Here we meet the first disciples in the book of Mark. As I said, we're going to look at them more intently in chapters 2 and 3. But for right now, Mark highlights the calling of four men. And why does he do that? I think he's saying something here. This is important. This goes to the overall message. He's saying, look how unlikely the details of God's Messiah are compared to their and our expectations. You got Simon, whose name changed to Peter, his brother Andrew, and then in verse 19, James and John. It's not the first meeting of Jesus that these men had. It might surprise you to know that. Jesus wasn't walking along and saw some some strangers and said, come follow me, and they did. This was not their first meeting. A year earlier, John records their first encounter with Jesus. Just listen, John chapter one, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, John the Baptist had disciples who were following him. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now I think this literally, as we'll see in a minute, means they, they began walking behind him. And Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus says to them, come and see. So they came, saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him on that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Verse 40, listen. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew Simon Peter's brother. When John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, said, look, behold the Lamb of God, Andrew, who was one of his disciples, believed John the Baptist. And before following after Jesus, he runs and grabs Peter, runs and grabs Simon, his brother, 
And then Peter and Andrew both went to follow Jesus, who spent the day with him. And that's when, by the way, Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter. That's important. Why? Listen, these men knew something of Jesus. They'd heard him teach. Their response to Jesus, listen, was one of calculation, not of impulse. You have to be careful saying, Jesus said, follow me, and they did for no reason. They had every reason to follow Jesus. They'd heard him. They'd seen him. They had heard the endorsement of John the Baptist about him. This was not a blind following. It was calculated, as should every disciple of Christ be. Now, it says they were casting a net. This is kind of fun to geek out on a little bit. Uh, the, the, the Greek word is uh, amphibalene. The first part of ampha comes from the same word which we get amphitheater. It's round. It means to throw around. They had a, a round net, a circular net, according to Matthew 4, 19, by the way. And it was about 20 feet in diameter the outside was, of the perimeter was, was weighted with heavy bars of metal or rocks, and it is extremely hard to master. How do I know that? I hit myself in the back of the head with one when I tried it in Israel. Yeah, I mean, you can wrap up. It is a, it's a mess. To, to be able to whirl and hurl this thing takes exacting skill. Historians tell us it took a lifetime to master James Edwards writes this. With practice and dexterity, the casting net would be handled by a single fisherman, 20 feet around, who, either standing in a boat or, as in the case here, watching out into the water, gathered the net on his arm and heaved it forcefully out into a circular motion so that it would land like a parachute on the water, trapping fish as it sank to the bottom, and the fish were retrieved by the fishermen diving to the bottom, gathering the weights of the net together and dragging the net and its catch to shore. When they would fish from the boat, they would do the same thing, except they could gather the net with a rope from the bottom and pull it up on, onto the boat. Remember that practice for later. These were blue-collared men, but these were, these were no fools. These were skilled craftsmen. They weren't dumb, blue-collar, backwoods men. These were, read First and Second Peter and tell me what you think of his intelligence. Just look down for a minute at verse 19. Going along a little farther, not very far from there, he saw James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother, they were also in the boat mending their nets. Now, the nets needed to be mended because there were rocks and things that would catch on the bottom. And they would constantly have to sew up and re repair and patch up their nets. And they would do this usually every morning or every night as they began or finished their fishing. They were in their boat near the shore. It looks like Peter and his brother were standing on the shore. Likely... We'll get into this in just a few weeks, but let me just tell you, likely these two brothers were competitors. 
They were in business competition with each other. They no doubt knew each other. It says he didn't go very much farther and he met these two other brothers. Just remember that when we get into chapter three because they're gonna be the closest of friends pretty soon. And that leads now to the fourth astounding feature of Jesus' ministry inauguration, a radical invitation, a radical invitation. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishermen of men, of people. Now, before we look into the, the phrase that instantly interests everyone, fishers of men, look at the phrase, follow me. I think this is a summary of the call of Christianity. We're called to follow Christ. The book of Acts calls us Christians, one who are like Christ. We follow after him, not just locationally or geographically, but we follow who he is, what he said, his ways. First John 2 says, if... If anyone says that he knows him and doesn't walk in the same manner as he walked, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 3 to 6. Following him means we walk like Jesus walked. We behave like Jesus behaved. We think like Jesus thought. We have the same standards of morality that he taught. I think it's a summary of Christianity, following him. I, look, I love the fact that we call ourselves Christians. I think it'd be okay to say, what religion are you? I follow Jesus. And for people to say, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Can I ask you if you just pull the car over for a minute? Do you, are you a follower of Jesus? I didn't ask if you've walked up an aisle, prayed a prayer, if you've gone to camp. Are you a follower of Jesus? Is your life marked by following after the person, the teaching, the values, the morals of Jesus Christ. Remember, these men had studied Jesus and found him to be worthy to follow and worthy to give their lives to. And I want to challenge any of you, if you are questioning whether Jesus is worth following, just read ahead and mark. Just read. It's given to prove that he is worthy of your discipleship. The fun phrase, fishers of men. What is this about? Now, I, can I just confess to you, sometimes studying for sermons is a little bit amusing and sometimes fun. And it was this week looking at what people said about these men being fishermen. One guy, I think well-meaning friend said, this was, was mean, mean that they had to, they had to uh, find the right cane poles and they had to, all the preparation they had to do fishing. Well, yeah, except they're, they're fishing with nets, not poles here. Um, and they had all the preparation meant they had to put that. That's not the point. Don't get tripped up on being fishers of men. Stop and look at what he says. I will make you become fishers of men. 
The emphasis is on Jesus' work fundamentally changing the direction of these men's lives. Yes, there's an evangelistic application, but what he's saying more than that is, you think fish are your lives? I'm about to reorient the entire compass of where you think is north. Your life has been fishing for fish. I'm gonna make you fish for men. He didn't use this illustration, by the way, for those he called who weren't fishermen. Does that mean they were any less fishers of men? Not at all. He says, what you think is important, I'm gonna transform into being important for me. Notice they left their job, their livelihood, their father and their servants, they dropped it all. It was almost, when you know that they had been studying Jesus for the better part of a year, it's almost as if they were waiting for this moment to go be with him. He provides them this living metaphor. He says, you know how to fish. You're experts in fish. You've spent your whole life learning how to fish. I'm gonna teach you now how to fish in a different way. You're going to throw your nets, make your bait, orient your life around evangelism, fishing for men, bringing men in to understand what it means to have a right relationship with God, to be saved from sin and self, to have hope to not go to hell and to go to heaven because of understanding the good news that he is the Savior and has provided the way, the only way. They knew how to catch fish. They were good at it. And Jesus is about to teach them how to catch men Here's our word again, verse 18. We've already seen it. Mark's favorite word. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Why does it say they left their nets? That's their bank account. That's how they made money. Might have been the most valuable thing in their possession. And they left them because Jesus was more valuable. Not far from there, verse 19, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we're going to have so much more to say about them in chapter 3, just hold on to that. They were also fixing their nets, mending their nets in their boats. And immediately, here's our word again, he called them and they left not only their possessions, their nets, they left their relationships, their father Zebedee in the boat, their hired servants. That would have been the people who worked for them. And they went away to what? Follow him. My suspicion is that this would not have been a surprise to Zebedee or the servants my suspicion is, my sanctified imagination is Zebedee wouldn't have said, who is that or where are you going? I bet they'd had many conversations about Jesus of Nazareth. Why would Mark begin this gospel by telling us these unexpected, astounding features of Jesus' ministry inauguration? Well, I think they have some serious implications. Can I just give you a few? 
First of all, he wants to let us know from the beginning, God's good news is always anchored in repentance and faith. Believing who the Messiah is, who the King is, identifying him as the, as the sole Savior and repentance, which means conversion. Repentance has such a negative uh, um, uh, uh, definition that we attach to it. And that's right. It's just half of it. The, the, the real word means you change your mind. You, you change your orientation, not only against sin, but about Christ. When you see Jesus and John say, repent, that's another way of saying be converted, be saved. And from the very beginning, repentance and faith are going to mark the message of Jesus before and after his death and resurrection. Mark wants us to know that. Those are the elements of the good news of God. A second implication is this. Following Jesus must be calculated, deliberate, and get this, comprehensive. These men had studied Jesus for a year. And when he said, follow me, they said, we don't even know where, but we're on. They calculated, deliberated, thought it through, and then when it came time, they gave comprehensively. They left their possessions and they left their relationships and said, you are more valuable than anything we have or anyone we know. That's amazing. I think it's the same for you and me. When we come to Christ, we come to Christ no matter the cost. And thirdly, <laughs> this is implied in the metaphor of following Jesus assumes and demands calling others to follow Jesus with us. I think that's what's meant by become fishers of men. No one become, is to become a Christian and be satisfied without others becoming Christians as well. Now, you can look on your bulletin. I hope you didn't miss the... Um, the subtle message in the title. These were the first fishers of men, but not the last. I think it's reasonable to interpret this and apply this, that you and I are called to be fishers of men, evangelists as well. No one who understands the value of Jesus enough to give our lives to can possibly sit on such an amazing message. When Kim and I stood there at the Mona Lisa and it wasn't what we expected, can I confess to you, my first thought was disappointment. I kind of thought, this is what I've stood in line for so long to see, what looks like a cereal box. But the closer we looked at this little painting and the more we saw its beauty, it changed. The closer we examine Jesus, the more we look at who he is, what he said, and what he did, the more amazing he becomes. We say it all the time. Christ is amazing, 
And the Bible was written to ask you one question. Are you amazed? Amazed. 